Hey, it's Dua Lipa, and I'm at your service. This is my podcast where I bring you uplifting and insightful conversations with the people who inspire me the most. You've got to have discipline to become who you become. I haven't reinvented myself. I've yeah. evolved. We get into it with guests like Mo Farah, Dita Von Teese, Charlie XCX, Monica Lewinsky, and many, many more. I need freedom. Here's my platform. Let me shut up. You come and step on it. Plus fresh episodes featuring Billie Eilish, Amelia de Moldenberg, psychotherapist Esther Perel, and Blackpink icon. Jenny. Dua Lipa at your service. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Nella for here. Thank you so much for listening to the first season of Ritually and especially the last episode about my abortion. While making that episode of the podcast, I did a lot of thinking about abortion and spirituality. And I really want to continue that conversation. So today, we're bringing you an episode of another podcast called Access. It is all about having conversations about abortion. Garnet Henderson is a journalist who has spent the last decade reporting on abortion access in the United States. One of the main things she's learnt in that time is that most people don't know very much about abortion at all, really. This is despite the fact that abortion is so common. In the US, for example, one in four people capable of becoming pregnant will have an abortion in their lifetimes. But abortion is so highly stigmatized that most people just don't talk about it outside the context of political debates, which only reinforces the idea that it's a subject that doesn't belong in polite conversation. Rubbish. Now, this silence and fear is what creates stigma around abortion in the first place. It also allows misinformation to flourish. After learning so much about abortion through her work and seeing just how pervasive abortion myths are in our culture, Garnet became a person who talks about abortion all the time, everywhere. This made a lot of parties really awkward, but only for a few minutes because it turns out that people have a lot of questions about abortion. So Garnet decided to create Access, a podcast that answers all those questions that people might have and been afraid to ask. Today, we're sharing an episode that tackles one of the biggest abortion myths of all, that people of faith are inherently opposed to abortion. In this episode, Garnet speaks with scholars, religious leaders and activists who come from all sorts of different religious backgrounds. Their stories illuminate the fact that popular discourse around spirituality and abortion tends to come from an overwhelmingly white and conservative Christian perspective. And that affects us all. In fact, those people are in the minority. Now, this episode originally aired last year before Roe v. Wade was overturned, but it's only become more relevant in the wake of that devastating decision. This is Access.
Hello and welcome to Access, a podcast about abortion. I'm your host, Garnet Henderson. Our creator endowed us with the right to life. That's what Texas Governor Greg Abbott said when he signed SB 8, the state's near-total abortion ban, into law. That kind of religious and specifically evangelical Christian language permeates our conversations about abortion in the United States. We hear it from lawmakers, in the media, outside abortion clinics, and at events like the recent March for Life. All of this has created a popular misconception that religion and abortion are fundamentally at odds, that religious people think abortion is wrong, and religious people don't get abortions. But that actually couldn't be farther from the truth. According to the most recent data from the Guttmacher Institute, the majority of people who have abortions are religious or spiritual. A full 24% are Catholic. 17% are mainline Protestant. 13% are evangelical Protestant. And 8% report some other religious affiliation. That adds up to 62% of all abortion patients. There's also a history in our country of religious activism in favor of abortion rights and reproductive justice. For example, before Roe v. Wade, a group of about 3,000 clergy members helped people access safe abortions. That group was called the Clergy Consultation Service. It had chapters in 38 states and was made up mostly of Protestant ministers and Jewish rabbis. They helped connect people seeking abortions to licensed, safe doctors. By the time of the Roe decision, it's estimated that the Clergy Consultation Service had referred at least 450,000 people for abortion care. Recently, several clergy members continued this legacy by joining the fight against SB8 in Texas. They became plaintiffs in one of the lawsuits against the ban. And you can learn more about that in our bonus episode with Julia Kay of the ACLU. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you've heard people talk about faith. You might remember Sarah from Episode 8, who told us about having an abortion with the support of her rabbi. In Episode 11, when we learned about crisis pregnancy centers, Whole Woman's Health CEO Amy Hagstrom-Miller said that these anti-abortion centers use religion to hurt people which is fundamentally at odds with the Christianity she was raised with. And in our last episode, recorded outside the Supreme Court, we heard from several people of faith who showed up there to defend abortion rights. Not all Christians agree that abortion is wrong. And not all religious people in the United States are Christian. So today I'm turning the show over to people who have all kinds of relationships to this intersection of abortion and religion. I spoke with members of clergy, people who've had abortions, people who work in abortion access, and several people who fall into more than one of those categories. Here's what they want you to know. I'm 
I'm Serene Jones, and I have the great honor of being the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City, where I've been for 14 years. Um, I can't remember a moment in my life uh, when I wasn't pro-choice. I grew up in a very progressive Christian community. My father's a theologian and a pastor, and the churches I attended throughout Texas and Oklahoma were outspoken in their uh, views towards women's reproductive choice. So it came as a shock to me the first time I encountered someone in my teenage years uh, who thought that abortion was the work of the devil, because that had never occurred to me. I wanted to speak with Reverend Jones because not only is she a theologian, she's an expert on how abortion became the issue for the Christian right. Did you know that that's actually a very recent development? So it's, in one sense, a very strange history to look at, because if you were to look at the religious landscape of the United States uh, in terms of Christian communities in the 1920s, uh, you would have heard nothing about reproductive choice or about abortion. It wasn't even on the table as a topic for discussion um, and that was true uh, not only for Protestants, but also for Catholics. Um, Catholics do have a longer history of being anti-choice, but even that history is a complicated one. It wasn't um, a primary issue. And Catholic doctrine um, has historically said that uh, a fetus does not become an inspirited human until quickening, which means the moment when you can first feel the fetus move. So it's it's contrary to Catholic doctrine um, to be putting forth views that when you can hear a heartbeat at six weeks, like what's happening in um, Texas and similarly in Mississippi right now, uh, would have been unheard of. As recently as the 1960s, you see the conservative evangelical magazine Christian Life actually criticizing Catholics for what they called their non-biblical stance on reproductive rights. Um, the Christian Life article said that, this is a conservative magazine, says that the Bible definitely pinpoints a difference in the value of a fetus and in the value of an adult. Thus, the Bible would appear to disagree with the official Catholic view that the tiniest fetus is as important as an adult human being. In the 1970s, if you look at the religious landscape of the United States, 70% of Baptist pastors supported abortion to protect the mother's mental or physical health. And as late as the 1970s, all the way up to 1979, the Southern Baptist Convention issued uh, resolutions stating that they affirm their, quote, conviction about the limited role of government in dealing with matters related to abortion. So what happened in the 80s and 90s to flip this position to its absolute opposite now. There's many theories as to how this happened. We see it happening actually right now, not only with abortion, but with the issue of trans rights. 
um, in that there was a concerted effort on the part of conservatives in the United States to find a wedge issue that they thought they could pull out of the bucket of life issues and mobilize it to divide basically um, conservatives from progressives and to hopefully gain and build a conservative majority. And this was one of those issues that they, it appears rightly guessed, um, if they used it appropriately and convincingly um, in the media and throughout the conservative church network, could, could divide. And it was specifically heightened by the fact that this was the same time in which desegregation was happening. Um, it's the same time in which voting rights were changing in the United States. New understandings of democracy were emerging. We were coming out of the Vietnam War with a new sense of social purpose. There was a real powerful sense that there was change in the air with respect to the meaning of American democracy, which was threatening to the conservatives. And this became their wedge issue simply by virtue of the fact that if they could frame it as an issue of who had more control over women's bodies, women or men, if you could take that argument into a basically patriarchal community, you could convince people that women actually did not have the sole determining right over uh, the reproductive uh, use of their bodies, that that, in fact, belonged elsewhere. What's really horrifying to me, I should say, as a Christian theologian, is in its most recent manifestations, the anti-abortion movement is not just one where you have some conservative politicians coming up with an anti-abortion platform that conservative churches then agree to follow along with. Conservative churches, conservative evangelical churches in particular, are actually leading the political drive. They are at the forefront of it. They're making up the arguments. They're leading the charge. So this isn't just a marginally a Christian issue. It is being driven by evangelical Christians. What's so interesting about the way the movement has evolved is that um, it went from being a question mainly about the role of the state in women's decisions about their reproductive rights to actually, you know, the rhetoric of murder and of, uh, you know, evangelical protesters literally believing that, you know, unimaginable murder is happening. And it's escalated to such a degree that violence seems completely warranted um, in communities. But what's so fascinating to me, I first became aware of this when I was on the board of a Planned Parenthood uh, clinic in the Connecticut town where I used to live, was that when you looked at the people who were coming in for abortions, they were disproportionately... Um, young women from evangelical and Catholic families. Young women from liberal or more progressive families had very low abortion rates. So the ironic thing about, let's take Texas for an example, is, is that this new law, if it were to actually be applied in a non-racialized, non-class-biased way, would probably have mothers 
white mothers in evangelical churches being sued by their pastors for the abortion that they helped their daughters get. That is, if you were to do it statistically, who would be impacted most by this new law. So that's what's so um, strange about the whole thing is that the impact actually on the bodies of evangelical and Catholic women is profound. I believe that God creates all of us, women, men, trans people, all of us living, walking around human beings with the capacity to make choices about our bodies. And um, the, the, the God would not want to get into the heart and mind of women and uh, force them to carry pregnancies. Enforced pregnancies is so far outside the realm of God's gracious, beautiful will for our world as a scholar um, and as a theologian. I always have to say, you know, you can find just about anything in the Bible that you want because it's such a long and complicated and diverse set of stories about how human beings have related to God. Um, so there, you can't pull a single topic out of a hat and not find someone who can find something in the Bible to support their particular view. There is the one passage in the Psalms where anti-abortion activists go to say the Bible says we shouldn't have abortion. It's the claim that God made us and knew us in the womb. You know, that psalm is trying to make the point that, that the presence of God to human reality is, is all-encompassing. I mean, there's many passages in the Bible that, that claim that God knows us even in death and beyond. So it, it's more a statement about the all-encompassing presence of God than it is a statement about abortion. I can promise you the writer of that particular psalm had no idea that it would be applied to this weird and dangerous present debate about abortion. But also there's places all over the Bible where you can see claims are being made about the life of the mother being more important than the fetus. There's five or six of those passages. So why would those be there if the Bible was so one-sided with respect to abortion? And as hard as they look, none of those anti-abortion rights activists can find Jesus saying anything about abortion. Now, Jesus does talk on on almost every page of the New Testament about poverty, about inequality, about the need to attend to the sick, to the orphan, to the widow. Do we hear evangelical communities making those their top priorities because Jesus talks about it all the time? No. It's this, it's this strange emergence of abortion as the issue that they focus on, which isn't there in Jesus' teaching. It's simply not. Hi, it's so nice to be here. My name is Rafa Kidvai. Um, my pronouns are they and them. And I'm the director of the Repro Legal Defense Fund at If When How. I'm also a core organizer for a group called Queer Crescent, which is an organization for queer Muslims.
I grew up in Pakistan, in Karachi, and I moved here in 2003, but it was like sort of one of the first wave of people applying for student visas after 9-11. So it was a special and fun time to move here. And I went to a small school called Hampshire College, where they have an annual civil liberties and public policy conference about repro justice. And through CLIP, I really was introduced to work around prison abolition and criminalization and the punishment of pregnancy outcomes. And then, you know, after that, I dabbled in making films and went to law school and was a public defender. And so I did some work around criminalization and then really came back to repro because it was the framework through which I learned about so much of the criminalization work that I did. And the sort of punishment of people for self-managing abortions was really my draw to If When How and the Repro Legal Defense Fund, which is the work that we do, is supporting people who are surveilled, punished, prosecuted around self-managing their abortions. You know, usually I'm so quiet around my faith, and I think that's true for a lot of people, maybe on the left. And for lots of reasons, I think in part, faith has been co-opted by the right of most religions. And I think it's taken me a while to feel like I'm an authority um, as a Muslim when I'm also politically pretty left. <laughs> but I think really fundamentally the draw to Islam for me is it's a way of life that really puts, I think, like a lot of religions, gives you sort of a pathway for how to be compassionate, kind, honest, preserve the health and safety of our communities. And so I think the draw to Islam for me is, is that plus the fact that I grew up with it. And so I think there's a way in which I have always wanted to find a place from which to feel grounded. And so I've tried things like meditation and that's great. But because I grew up with the practice of praying five times a day, um, which basically feels like meditation, that just feels much more accessible to me as something that I know. It really, there is such a variety in terms of how I grew up hearing about abortion, but I will tell you that abortion didn't feel as much of a, like as much of a stigmatized word or like something you whisper um, till I came to the U.S. I think, weirdly, I, I think the culture around abortion in the United States is just pretty backward. So the Crown's position on abortion is very much like my own, um, which is it's really within your personal purview to decide if you want to have an abortion, but there's no explicit ban in terms of when or how in Islam for having an abortion at any stage in a pregnancy. There's this idea that at approximately 120 days of gestation, which is like 17 and a half weeks, so halfway through your second trimester, um, and definitely past the 15 weeks of the Mississippi conversation, or the six weeks in Texas, that the, the fetus is sort of ensouled at that point, which is a concept that I think exists in a lot of Abrahamic religions. But, but life and ensoulment are different. <laughs> and um, a fetus is sort of always considered to be potential life. And the gestating person is the source of life. And there's no point at which the source of life, their health and safety is to be risked by potential life. So I think that sort of 
in practice, a lot of religious leaders have interpreted abortion law across different nations to say something around the, based on the sort of 120 days of gestation and settlement. But the Quran itself doesn't say anything about abortion being banned. And that 120 days does come from the Quran, but certainly not as a link to um, after the 120 days, an abortion is not okay. Or and and also to be really clear, even amongst the most sort of conservative ideas about abortion in Islam, an abortion is not worthy of punishment. That idea of punishment and wrongdoing is to me a much more colonial evangelical Christian um, concept than it is one that's rooted in Islam. So this is a weird technical fact about the Quran, but 113 of the 114 verses of the Quran begin with the sentence, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, which means, I begin in the name of Allah, who is the most compassionate and the most merciful. If there's like one consistent message that I feel like is really, really given to me in the Quran, it's that Grace and ease and kindness are fundamentally important. And forcing someone to remain pregnant seems pretty fucking counter to that for me. So if you have no understanding of what pregnancy looks like, you probably, which is true for most people making decisions about what pregnant people can and cannot do, I feel like you don't understand how cruel it is to force someone to remain pregnant. But I, I know that it is both from personal experience, being pregnant in my life, and also just from the living in the world, that the risk to people medically when they're pregnant is high, the risk to their safety because of intimate partner violence is high, and that forcing someone to, to take these risks when they have already determined it's not a thing that they want or can do feels really, really cruel to me. I don't know if it's laughable or just like deeply insulting, but the comparison of what was happening in Texas to Sharia law is ludicrous on for the technical reason that Islam is actually much more liberal in abortion than those laws. So you actually just got it wrong. But it also just kind of highlights, which I think highlights how racist or xenophobic or Islamophobic that narrative is. And this assumption that being quote unquote backward is synonymous with being Muslim or is synonymous with Sharia is just so offensive. It's both astounding and so irritating to me that literally we are talking about changing the laws of this country to adapt to one section of one faith as the standard. And it's actually also really scary because I, you know, we know abortion is so political, right? And the export of the evangelical Christian sort of right ideology globally has limited reproductive control for people, not just in this country, but outside this country. And so it's really scary to me. It's also offensive to me because if at 15 weeks, for instance, I'm well within my rights as a Muslim, whether if I, you know, if I believe in this 120 days of gestation standard, that's like 17 and a half weeks. That's past the 15 week ban. So you've just limited my religious autonomy. And so much of religion when it gets tied to power is about controlling people's lives, telling them what to do, telling them how to practice, telling them they'll be in trouble if they don't do it. And that's just not my Islam. And so it makes me kind of quiet, right? It's like, 
I don't need to tell you what your belief system should be, or I don't need to tell you what is right or wrong. These are just very personal decisions for me. And this is my, this happens to be my guide. But now, you know, in part because of this conversation and just the conversations I've been having, a little bit of me is like, fuck you. This is not yours to talk about. This is not yours to claim. This is not yours to be the authority on. And so yeah, I think I'm just kind of tired of being quiet about faith and abortion and Islam and abortion and just repro in general, because like, I feel like I'm just as valid in my opinions than someone who's has the weight and the power of government or a religious institution behind them, if that makes sense. Hi, I'm Rabbi Salem Pierce. I use she, her pronouns. I'm calling from Durham, North Carolina, where I am the executive director of Carolina Jews for Justice, which is a statewide organization that does work on a variety of justice issues here in the Tar Heel State. Rabbi Pierce is a counselor with Faith Aloud, which provides spiritual counseling to people considering pregnancy options, including abortion, parenting, and adoption. These are people who are calling either um, because they're considering abortion. Um, some of them may have already had an abortion and, you know, need to process. I, I mostly just listen, which is such an important part of, you know, of pastoral care. And, you know, answer questions if needed. But my belief, and I think Faith Aloud's belief, is that people who are considering abortions are the ones who are experts on their own experience and what I try to do is help them pull, pull from their own pool of wisdom. So in the Jewish tradition, um, abortion is a fundamental right. Abortion is required in some cases and certainly considered necessary in others. And that goes back a long way through rabbinic tradition and hasn't changed in, in generations. And so when I hear you know, people of faith oppose abortion. Well, first of all, I think faith, um, that is, that's often, a, you know, a, uh, a word that's used to connote religion, but I don't consider Judaism a religion of faith to begin with. And then I also think, well, which faith are you talking about? Because they don't all um, have, have the same view of abortion. I would say Judaism is a tradition and it encompasses people with a wide variety of practices, some of which are religious and spiritual, some of which are secular and cultural. So um, it is not monolithic and it just encompasses a wide variety of people. Just having anything hurled at people who are seeking abortion care during this vulnerable moment um, breaks my heart, um, no matter what the source but I will say there is an added um, layer there for me as someone who holds sacred these texts that are being weaponized in this way. My understanding of a lot of Christian thinking on abortion does come from places like in the Psalms, in the prophets. And for, for Jewish legal understanding, which is, you know, where the issue of abortion comes up, those texts don't register. Those aren't the texts that Jewish scholars and experts and the rabbis of old are looking at. We don't make law from 
psalms. They are beautiful pieces of poetry, and they are not operative when we're talking about Jewish law. And then in addition, Judaism really values what we call makloket l'shem shemayim, which is divergent opinions or disagreement for the sake of heaven. And what we mean by that is that there is a real understanding in the tradition and the last today that there are different, like honestly different ways of looking at things. And there's no one, you know, I don't know anyone in Jewish tradition who would say there's one way to understand a verse of Torah or Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. Like that is just not, that's not something um, that anyone makes claim to. And I think, you know, even a a Jew who um, opposed, was opposed to abortion like Marley or for themselves Jews are, because of our history, very, very reluctant um, to want a religious viewpoint to dominate state policy or public policy. That hasn't worked out well for us um, in the past. It should concern everyone, not just Jews, but especially Jews, when we have laws being made according to one particular religious understanding. What I often hear and what breaks my heart is how much the Christian rights, particular interpretation of abortion has permeated our modern society. And so the questions that the people that I talk to raise are often about the deeply moral implications that they have heard of, perceive, hear others talking about. Um, And so they want to know things like, Will, am I a horrible person for, for considering this? How can I do this if it's murder? What will other people think? And that those are the, the terms that people are coming to this decision under is horrifying because they're not asking often, not very often asking about, is this the right choice for me? What do I think about it? How could I care for a child or not? Um, What do I imagine for my life um, and my family's life? They're asking, you know, questions about how others will perceive them and how they can live with themselves if they do something that they understand is considered murder. My name is Anise Simon. I use she and her pronouns. Um, And I'm based in South Florida. Uh, My family is both from the Caribbean and Turkey, and I grew up all over the place in the Caribbean and South Florida and lived in North Carolina for a long time. I'm like a third generation reproductive health advocate. My grandfather did a lot of things in his community to support women and um, people who were having children. Um, My mom also worked in family planning as an RN, and I work in reproductive justice and abortion access. Yeah, when I had my abortion, I was living in North Carolina. Uh, I went to school in North Carolina and was really involved uh, in the local abortion fund there. Shout out to MC Abortion Fund. Um, And I was also really involved in Jewish community there. I helped found a Jewish community kind of center for young adults called Moisha House with some friends. The way that I found out I was pregnant was... um, I was having um, just really, really tough times with my mental health, and I I couldn't really figure out what was going on. Um, I had an IUD at the time, and I was actually um, in an abusive relationship. I was in a relationship where I didn't feel safe at home. I felt a little bit trapped. 
I worked in women's spaces, feminist spaces, queer community, and I was such a visible feminist in my community. And so I was really sort of ashamed for people to know that I was scared in my own house. And I, and I really was. The relationship was physically and financially abusive. And my partner was actually a Black man, a Black man who did a lot of work for the Black community where I lived. And to be perfectly honest, I was uh, scared to call the police on a Black man at this time in America. Um, and so I didn't really know what to do. And so when my mental health started struggling, I wasn't sure if it was all of these emotions sort of coming to a head of being so certain I had to leave this relationship and figure a way out. Uh, but my friend, I was at their house and they were like, just take a pregnancy test. So I took a test and um, it, it it came back positive. And so I was certain of two things in that moment. Um, one that I like absolutely had to leave this relationship. There was no way I was going to raise a child in an abusive home. And I didn't think I deserved that either. And um, I also knew that I was gonna terminate the pregnancy, that this wasn't the right time for me to have a child and this wasn't what I wanted my family to look like. I did not get any support from my partner at the time and shortly after I had my abortion, we completely separated homes. Um, but I did have the support of a lot of my friends um, and there were a few black women that I did feel comfortable telling black women to black women like, hey, I'm in this abusive situation. And, you know, that information is received differently, like all the way from like everyone gets shaken a little bit to like you should leave this guy. But across the spectrum of how we were all sort of coming to terms with um, abuse in in the black community and whether or not to to involve the police, all of my girlfriends really had my back. So some of them made food for me. Some of them came with me to my appointment. Folks just laid in bed and watched reality TV with me after my appointment. And my mom, who lived pretty far away at the time, uh, sent me flowers and told me the story of her abortion. And something that has always been a part of my family is, you know, finding pieces of our text and, and our Jewish culture that sort of help explain and speak to what's happening in this moment. So I was able to have some special conversations with my mom to sort of come to terms with what it meant to really prioritize um, saving my life. So if you're a Jew, to save a life is the most important thing. And at that point in the relationship, the level of violence that existed, I knew that having an abortion and separating myself from this person was um, in service of saving my own life. I think that Every person has the ability to choose, you know, what they want for their life, what it means to live a meaningful life for themselves. And so um, in the context of my religious beliefs and some of the, the primary texts that I've read in the Talmud, um, I absolutely believe that every person has the right to choose, you know, whether or not they want to start a family. There's some really beautiful text in the Talmud about what to do, for example, during childbirth if... Um, the parent and, and child's life is in crisis. And it says, you know, you do everything to protect the parent unless the child is halfway out. And so I often turn to that text when I'm talking with other folks in Jewish community about, you know, what it means to have an abortion in, in our faith and something that was really healing for me. So it was almost a year later and I had, I had done this program um, through American Jewish University called Brandeis Collegiate Institute 
And on the American Jewish University campus, they had a mikvah, which is a ritual bath. And you use it for a variety of reasons. In very orthodox communities, people visit the ritual bath after menstruation. In more reform, conservative, reconstructionist communities, it's used for a variety of things, for healing. Um, we often talk about the water in the mikvah as mayim hayim, living water. And for me, it really felt like a womb-like space a space where there's living water where you can sort of heal yourself. And so um, I'll be going to the mikvah uh, before my wedding as, as part of a ritual. And this summer that I was in the BCI program, I went to the mikvah at American Jewish University and talked to the mikvah attendant about my abortion experience and had a very healing moment in the mikvah with the attendant. I lived in North Carolina for a long time and I'm a black person and so I think often People would assume that I was Christian and I'd even have to like walk people through like where on a map is Israel and like where nearby is my family actually from. And I, you know, often heard these conversations about abortion and faith and they often they didn't include a lot of black folks, a lot of black women or queer people. And they, you know, didn't often include Jewish folks. And so, you know, as a practice as a Jew, we often talk about writing ourselves into the text, wrestling with the text. You know, for women and, and queer people, we're often trying to find moments in the text where we see ourselves. So I think it's almost uh, a similar experience in terms of being a Jewish person, a, a Black Jewish person in the South, having to find ways to write myself into that conversation and make room for my faith. Something that I find really beautiful about Jewish culture is this journey of looking not necessarily for answers, but for questions. So for Jews, the Torah is one of our, our primary texts, but there are also other documents where rabbis have been arguing for millennia about text and what is it in, what does its interpretation mean? And it's more about the journey than coming to the end. So in the Talmud, there are 5,000 questions and fewer than like 100 answers. And so for me, that has always really spoken to the fact that our religious written documents are like living text. I think that for me, as a Jewish person, the right to abortion is absolutely very connected to my faith. I was able to make the decision to have an abortion with the support of my mom and, and going through religious texts, and I was able to heal from my abortion in the same way. Sometimes I think these conversations that are really framed around Christianity leave, leave people out of the conversation. Many, many cultures and religions have lots of language around menstrual regulation, which is what some folks call abortion, the ability to regulate your own menstrual cycle. And in Jewish culture, in the Talmud, there are so many places where legislative bans really can infringe on what is in our religious text. My name is Lauren Morsi. I'm 23. I work at Catholics for Choice as an administrative associate. I'm also the co-founder and co-director of the Student Coalition for Reproductive Justice. I'm a San Francisco, California native, currently living in Washington, D.C., proud Catholic, proud, proudly pro-abortion, and proudly a reproductive justice organizer.
The joke amongst Catholics usually is that the further you get away from Rome, the more progressive it becomes. So I guess you could say that I grew up in a pretty progressive Catholic church. And because of that, the silver lining was that I actually got a very, very positive view of Catholicism very early on in my life, which I recognize that I'm very, very lucky to have. So... The seed that sort of planted this whole activism and my work today was when I was 14 years old, I started my confirmation process. That process is when you as a, you know, an adult decide to become a part of the Catholic Church. I had a really great confirmation process, which again, when I moved to the Midwest for undergrad, (laughs) that was not the case that I heard from other people. Uh, We learned just the messages of the gospel through the lens of social justice. That was always 100% there. At the same time, I had begun uh, going to a Catholic high school. We had to take religion classes because it was a Catholic school. And at the same time that I'm, you know, learning the faith aspects of the gospel, I'm also learning the Bible academically as a text in school. And so I you know, thought my high school did a really good job of coming at the Bible as a literary text as opposed to the literal word of God. So both of those things were happening at the exact same time in my life. And in particular, this one moment where we had a sort of community circle where we were essentially allowed to express our concerns and questions and feelings about the church's teachings uh, was made for us, which again, unheard of (laughs) Um, in most places. And it was a, it was a very powerful moment for me when, you know, I felt the need to speak up and be like, I don't think that the church's teaching on abortion is correct, especially from reading the Bible, reading the Gospels, and my own personal relationship with God. Like, I physically cannot conceive of a God that would not support and love and extend grace to people who are accessing abortion. I was like, it just doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense to me. And the deacon at the time taught me one very important Catholic teaching that I still hold very tight to my heart today, and that's a conscience. And what the Catholic Church says about conscience is that your conscience is like where you meet God in your depths and where you have a conversation with God. And that voice, that voice is God's law written on your heart. And it literally says in the catechism, if you go against your conscience, that's sinning, period. And that was a very, very, very powerful moment for me because I was like, but I felt God's law written on my heart at that moment. And I was like, cool, this is, this makes me feel good about this decision. And I went through the process. I chose my confirmation saint. She's the uh, patron saint of lawyers and scholars, which like I want to be a lawyer in a couple years, hopefully. And so that really carried into the rest of my time in high school and then into undergrad, where I also decided to go to a Catholic university because very positive uh, view of my faith. And of course, as all things are, came full circle in undergrad when I showed up to Loyola University Chicago and realized that students were actively being denied sexual and reproductive health care on campus. 
you would go into our campus health center, could request birth control. But if you said that you wanted it for contraceptive purposes, you would not get it. And at times I was hearing from the student organizers of the student group that I uh, joined. They said that they had students reach out to them and say, they referred me to a crisis pregnancy center. And so I joined Students for Reproductive Justice. We're a campus organization that is not affiliated with Loyola at all. They would not let us become a student organization. And what we did was we organized for the school to change their policies about sexual and reproductive health care access on campus. And then we also filled the gap when the administration was not picking up their responsibilities to take care of us. So we would provide condoms, dental dams, lube, and reliable referrals to clinics that will actually give them the care that they need. We like to talk about the university as a marketplace for <laughs> ideas, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's the case that at Catholic universities and Catholic colleges across the country that they're actively siphoning off these groups of students that are doing an essential service for them. There are other student groups, not just at Loyola, that did this work. And we all knew of each other via social media. You know, Hoyas for Choice at Georgetown, Irish Reproductive Health at Notre Dame. There were some student groups at Boston College, Santa Clara. We all got together and we said, There's so many of us. We're all across the country. We've got to do something together. We have to share best practices. We have to support each other because we exist at this very niche intersection of organizing. It's faith-based organizing, reproductive justice organizing, and campus-based organizing. So you're dealing with the constraints and opportunities that are available in those three spaces which is why we started the Student Coalition for Reproductive Justice. We have 10 chapters right now. And what Scourge aims to do is to create national campaigns so that we can work together with all the student groups across the country, as well as provide resources and technical assistance that we did not have when we were doing this work. We hit a point where administration was actively bringing clergy into our meetings. So it also happens that a lot of administrators happen to be clergy. And so there was a point where we kind of hit an obstacle of we didn't know how to talk about reproductive justice. We didn't know how to talk about sexual health. We didn't know how to talk about reproductive health within the Catholic context. And that's really when Catholics for Choice became really pivotal in our work. They came out and did a presentation uh, for my organization, and they went across the country and did them for other organizations about how to talk about Catholic theology and how Catholic theology and reproductive justice are not in conflict with each other. They are actually very much on the same page What clergy really said at this point is like, you're really asking us to change our beliefs. And when we got the language to learn and learned how to talk about it, we said, actually, no, we're not asking you to change your beliefs at all. And this is very central to the Catholic faith conscience, for example, that everybody should follow their conscience. So if your conscience tells you that you need reproductive and sexual health care services, You got to have it. You know, there's a rich tradition of dissenters that have been there, and I'm just following in that tradition. And they're not going to go away, you know? 
And I think they're going to get even louder in particular because swaths of young people are leaving the church. In part, that's why I've sort of also kept the label Catholic. It's almost, and I've always heard this, you know, especially as a queer Catholic, there are some people that have been so deeply hurt by the church and their teachings that they cannot stay and they cannot be a part of the community and they cannot fight. And I like totally hold those people in my heart, but I have made the decision to stay and to be that like loud and proud queer Catholic, that loud and proud pro-abortion Catholic. Naming and identifying myself as that is something that is so important to me because I want people who are in the shadows and hiding and being like, well, I don't know if there are people like me out there. Like I want them to see me. I want young people to see me and that I'm doing this work because of my faith and not in spite of it. first abortion when I was 20 years old and I was a new immigrant from Pakistan to the U.S. I'd been here less than a year I think at the time and where I come from Pakistan is a Muslim country dominantly Muslim country and people tend to be conservative but the one thing that we don't have an issue with in Pakistan is abortion because Islamically abortion isn't considered murder you know sex before marriage is a huge deal it's a huge deal and really looked down on and you know, it's just not something that you do. But when it comes to abortion, it's allowed. So I came to the U.S. having been used to that in Pakistan. And then I come to America and I get pregnant. I don't want to be pregnant. I get pregnant. I was using birth control, so I wasn't expecting to be pregnant. And I think because I was using birth control, I went through a period of denial because I was like, no, it's just, I mean, I know what happens. It's not going to happen to me. And then my world kind of just shattered because I just moved here. I was an immigrant. I came here for school. I lived in a one-bedroom apartment that I shared with my best friend and my cat. So a baby was nowhere in the picture. You know, when you're in a new country, you're not really, you're figuring out transport and, and all of that. And I didn't know how to figure out the whole medical system and the legal system. I didn't know what was to come. So I reached out to my cousin, who was in med school at the time. My cousin gave me a list of clinics that claimed to do a free to low-cost ultrasound. Uh, unfortunately, the list of those clinics was actually a crisis pregnancy center, and I'm pretty sure my cousin didn't even know what they were at the time. So that's how I ended up at LGBC with my partner. I walked in there. Very thankfully, I figured out what that place was because immediately I had that vibe with all the biblical imagery and the two older ladies dressed up in white lab coats. And we knew that we had to play along to get what we need and get out of there. So we did that. I told them, yes, we're having a baby, blah, blah, blah. I just wanted a sonogram to know how pregnant I was so I could leave. They started with trying to get me to fill out a whole bunch of paperwork, put me on 
government assistants, you know, told me not to tell my parents. They made my partner and I sit in a room for 30 minutes and watch this really crappy video about someone who was imitating a doctor because they're wearing a lab coat, take dissection instruments, surgical instruments, and like dissect a he- what looked like a human child piece by piece. And they were basically trying to say, what this doctor is doing here, this is what an abortion is if you choose to have an abortion. Even though we ha- we went in with trying to get them to think we're not trying to have an abortion. They told me if I have an abortion, I'll get breast cancer. They told me if I have an abortion, I'll never have children again. All of that, my brain kind of knew was not true. All of the things that they said I knew were false. I just knew better, you know. Uh, they did the sonogram at that point. Like, I think we successfully convinced them I'm not trying to have an abortion. They did the sonogram. They're not trauma-informed. I'm a sexual assault survivor. I actually tried to explain to them I have this fear of transvaginal ultrasound. So I was wanting to know if it was a, an abdominal ultrasound or a transvaginal ultrasound just because it's triggering for me. And the lady doing the sonogram responded by, honey, you're pregnant. Now you should learn to deal with pain. Something you should never say to anybody. After that, they also told me the, uh, the abortion is so dangerous that the state of Texas to protect women has banned one of the pills so that people can't access it in Texas because it's so dangerous. And given that my only option was a medication abortion, that's what I wanted because, again, nothing wrong with surgical abortion, but it's more invasive and more triggering for someone who's been through sexual assault. So for me, that was my only option. And that's when I panicked when she said, oh, Texas had banned the pill. I completely went into panic mode. I wish I had fact-checked. I wish I had looked into it deeper, but my emotional state couldn't handle it in that moment. Basically, Texas had never actually banned medication abortion. It's just something they told me. So I could have actually had it in Texas. But because of what they told me, I ended up calling my sister and I told her, look, I'm pregnant. I don't want to be pregnant. I don't have my knee. And she flew to Texas and she paid for me and my partner, our plane tickets to Colorado Springs paid for my hotel, paid for my abortion. The whole procedure ended up costing nearly $2,000 and I didn't have that kind of money. I didn't have internal struggles as a Muslim having an abortion. I'm I'm spiritual, I'm religious. It's, it's For me, it's more personal. It's between me and God. But I do say I'm Muslim and, you know, I, I have my faith. Sex before marriage is a sin, so I committed that sin, but there was no abortion as murder. And so I didn't have those issues and I didn't carry it over with me because of that. And then. Um, a year later, I decided to tell my mother, and her because she is very religious, her first thing was, how far along were you? And I told her it was within 120 days, and she just had this instant thing of relief, and she said, okay, good. I'm sorry you went through it alone. I need some kind of process that just happened to you, but I'm glad that it was under, under the 120 days. Maybe last year, I started to become very open about my abortion and very public, and A lot of people may not want to talk about it, but no one from my family or no other Muslims in my community have have actively given me any hate for being open in public about my abortion. I also did some clinic escorting, and even when I would escort people walking into a clinic to have an abortion, you always have these Christian protesters, and even when I was going in, they're yelling at me in the name of Jesus. You know, they're, they're yelling at this Muslim girl in the name of Jesus, and I'm just like, why do you think that makes a difference to my life? It doesn't. Like, good for you, and Jesus won't be doing that anyway. Just because I'm Muslim and my religion's okay with it doesn't mean that I'm the only one who should be able to have it because my, you know, religious, I just think that's a, to me, that's a silly argument. Abortion is healthcare. Healthcare should be accessible to all, regardless of what religion someone chooses to follow. 
I want to move away from it being a religious debate because it's not. It shouldn't be a religious debate. My name is Reverend Aaron Payson. I'm minister of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Worcester. I've been in that position for 23 of the 30 years that I've been in ministry. And during that time, I have been actively involved in a variety of ways at the local, state, and national level in, in working for reproductive health rights and justice. Unitarian Universalism is a liberal religious tradition that is born out of Christianity in the United States and in Europe, in Europe during the era of the Reformation in the United States in the latter part of the 18th and early part of the 19th centuries. I think the easiest definition that I've heard historically is one that was provided by Thomas Starr King, who was a Unitarian and Universalist minister at the time when the denominations were distinct. He once remarked that Unitarians believe that they are too good to be damned by God, and Universalists believe that God is too good to damn them. So it is a tradition that is grounded in a theology of both divine and human goodness. I would say it was the wedding of my faith and experiences that drew me to the reality that we live in a very inequitable time when it comes to the issues of reproductive health rights and justice. And it was the experience of working with women and their families who faced a whole host of challenges, whether it was abortion or teenage pregnancy or prenatal death or infertility. All of those things bear witness to this reality. One of the things that I have been involved with most directly with the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice has been the evolution of what has now become a curriculum called Compassionate Care. And it began as the All Options Counseling Program. And I have had the honor of helping to shape some of that with an incredible group of colleagues uh, from across the country. And so my response is not to give that person who comes to me the answer of the tradition, but to accompany them in exploring what it is in their own faith and value system that has led them to consider this option and to explore with them their sense of other options and to affirm that they have a, a right to uh, determine for themselves what is best and that that is grounded in a theology of human agency that is a part of the, the divine gift of being made in the image of God for those who would use that kind of language and for others who might be less inclined to articulate it theologically. I would talk about it in terms of this is fundamentally the way that we as human beings honor each other's agency. This is one of the critiques that I have of what I refer to as the pro-birth movement. Because if it was truly pro-life, it would have a record of supporting families, supporting policies and ways of, 
addressing the incredible inequities that exist in our communities where women and children are considered among the poor to be the poorest. But I see a, a huge disconnect in the, the pro-birth movement in terms of desiring to make pregnancy compulsory while at the same time hampering efforts for the, the children that are born of those pregnancies to actually thrive and for their families to thrive. I would say to my Unitarian Universalist brothers and sisters that we have made significant progress over the past seven years. We passed a reproductive justice statement of conscience in 2015 as a part of our General Assembly. And I would encourage people to understand that the development of that has been an important product of our movement, but that the work continues and is most earnestly needed during this, this day when we're seeing the potential reversal of the significant gains that have been made by generations of women and activists and faith leaders and, and politicians and others who have worked so hard to bring us to where we are and that we need to press forward and protect not just the rights, but to develop the contexts in which reproductive freedom can be lived to its fullest potential. Kristen Haiti. I'm based in Toledo, Ohio. I got into this movement by becoming a clinic escort at Toledo's last abortion clinic. And so, yeah, I uh, kind of dove headfirst in about seven or eight years ago. So I've been escorting for that long. And now I'm on the board of our local abortion fund, the Agnes Reynolds Jackson Fund, um, and on the board of Pro-Choice Ohio, and I get to work for Awesome Abortion Access Front. You know, my background is not in Christianity. Now I kind of consider myself Muslim-ish. I'm like Muslim adjacent. My great-grandparents, we used to have a very small mosque. We're about an hour away from Dearborn, which has one of the largest Muslim populations. So we also have a very large Muslim population. But my great-grandfather... They used to have this very small mosque, and then the community built this beautiful mosque, which has been featured a lot because it's this gorgeous, big, bright mosque in the middle of farmland, like in rural Ohio. So it's it's a, a visual. And my great-grandfather helped found the community, but I didn't grow up in it, and then I married into it. So it is interesting to see it now, even from the perspective of being in or adjacent to a faith and how little it's talked about in in religious circles and religious institutions. And I think that's really where, you know, pro-choice and pro-abortion folks have kind of dropped the ball is that those uh, religious zealots uh, who are, sorry, mostly Christian, those people have really 
monopolized the faith perspective on abortion because they talk about it. And really, when you when you see all of this from the sidewalk, you understand why people are like, I'm not religious. I'm not Christian. We see the harm that religion, when it's used in that way, does to people all the time. And it can be really tough. Whereas our side is, well, we don't want to talk about those things. We're just going to, that's for out there. And here is where we're going to talk about religion. You just have hundreds of churches. And these are the bedrocks of our community. So many people are of faith. So even just from an organizing perspective, like this is so untapped. We, you have people here that could offer practical support, that could offer monetary support, that could volunteer, they could be escorts, they could be any number of things, but it is a little harder in the Muslim community. <laughs> There's a lot of cultural barriers to kind of overcome. Anything seen as kind of controversial or what we would call like haram, like forbidden, it, it's much like any other religion, culturally, people apply that to generally whatever they want. So abortion, obviously, nobody is going to talk about it because the community is going to gossip about you, or especially if you are unmarried, you know, those same kind of conservative religious undertones are just as prevalent in Islam and People have a hard time separating culture from religion. What are we talking about? Is this the cultural influence or is this what the actual religious texts tell you? But I tend to be endlessly optimistic in that we will just slowly crawl along and, and drag everybody with us and, and get there in the end. My mother-in-law, when we got arrested outside of SCOTUS, I was joking around. I showed her thinking she was going to like do that nice little auntie like smack on the leg. Like, what are you doing? And she goes, can I come next time? I was like, mom, yes, you can. <laughs> Let's get arrested together. I guess really my hope is that the pro-abortion movement can really see the power that churches and faith centers have to help and get involved in every way possible. And I wish we would stop tiptoeing around it and we have actual conversations because I, all of our patients, ne nearly all of them, when they have conversations with us, it's always, well, I don't believe in this, but, or I would never do this, but I'm a Christian, but we are leaving all of these people out there to just be inundated with the stigma and shame from the religious fundamentalism that we see on the sidewalks. And if we care about our parishioners, if we care about our flock, if we care about our people, then we have to be out there and we have to be with them and meeting them where they are and talking to them and, and pushing back on those things that creep into all of us. They are in the back of all of our brains and churches are our communities, and that's one of the best places to do it.
my name's Nick and I use they them pronouns and I got an abortion in Texas in 2017. I was 26 at the time and I was living in Houston. At the time that I had my abortion, I was unemployed. I was living in a three bedroom apartment with three other people. So there were four of us in a three bedroom and I didn't really have any money or means to take care of a child. I was broke and I knew that trying to find a job while visibly pregnant would be very, very difficult. I didn't want to be a parent at the time, so I was fine with that choice. But ultimately, it came down to the realities of just not having the money or ability to parent at that time. I hadn't converted to Judaism at that point. And at, at that point in my life, I would say that I believed in God, but I didn't have much of a relationship with God. So while my faith didn't play a role in making that decision, my faith has played a role in making meaning from that decision later after my conversion. Once I converted to Judaism and kind of developed a relationship with God, I was able to see my life and my choices in in more of a relationship way. Like I was able to see the ways in which God, specifically the aspect of God I relate to most, Shekhinah, the feminine aspect of God. I see the ways in which Shekhinah entered my life and was in my life and was present for me at a lot of critical moments, including when I made my abortion. Just the fact that I had the the clarity within myself to make that choice that, you know, I see now like that clarity and that peace I felt when I made my decision to have my abortion. I do see that as coming from my relationship with her that I wasn't completely aware of at the time. I felt a connection to Judaism for a long time. I grew up Christian and uh, left the church after a whole series of things kind of the culmination of which was me coming out as bisexual. And I was very attracted to Judaism. I was attracted to, you know, seeing a lot of LGBT activism within Judaism and just felt kind of a kinship with it. But it just never seemed to be the right time to convert. For years and years, I had kind of this nagging feeling, what if? And then it all culminated on my honeymoon in Galveston when a flash flood happened while we were out to dinner and I had to drive home in this flash flood and I thought we were going to die and I cried out to God and we made it back to our bed and breakfast and after that I kind of thought about it and I was like well I cried out to God so who am I crying out to And I knew then that that was the decision I had to make. And I really do feel like it was, again, the the workings of Shekhinah in my life. I grew up Catholic, and so abortion was incredibly demonized. I was raised anti-choice and believed very strongly in that uh, until I went to college and became a feminist. You know, people assume that religious means Christian and religious means anti-choice, Or if you're not Christian and religious, they assume that your beliefs are similar to Christianity or your faith looks similar to Christianity or your values look similar to Christianity when that's not the case. I mean, Judaism isn't 
Christianity minus Jesus. It's a whole different religion with a whole different viewpoint. And honestly, like a a different set of ethics. You know, I don't want to leave you with just like a legalistic justification of, you know, the, the laws of Judaism say this is permissible because while that is true, for me, it goes much deeper in that my relationship with God really allowed me to embrace my humanity and my dignity and self-worth. So for me, abortion wasn't just a choice I made within the confines of the laws of Judaism, but it was also a very personal choice that I felt like, you know, Shekhinah affirmed my worth and dignity as a human and affirmed my ability to choose being pro-abortion and a person of faith. I think that's something that in our movement as a whole is missing. Like people don't want to talk about it. So like religion kind of becomes the elephant in the room. And I think when we refuse to talk about it, we do cede that ground to anti-choice people. You know, we're we're kind of ceding that ground to them and, and acting as though, yeah, they, they really do have a, a monopoly on God. And that's just not true. covered so much today. Yet, I know that we have only scratched the surface on this topic. I already feel a follow-up episode coming. So if you have a perspective to share on religion and abortion, especially if you belong to a faith tradition other than Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, please reach out. You can send an email, or better yet, a voice memo, to accesspodcast at protonmail.com. That's in the show notes, too. Access is produced by me, Garnet Henderson. Our logo is by Kate Ryan, and our theme music is by Lily Sloan. Thanks to Faith Aloud, We Testify, and the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, as well as today's wonderful guests. Remember, Access needs you to do one thing to support the show today. Donate, buy merch, or share the show. All those links are in the show notes. Please subscribe to Access wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AccessPod. Transcripts are forthcoming on our website, a podcast about abortion.com. Garnet Henderson, a version of this episode aired on Access, a podcast that answers all the questions you might have been too afraid to ask about abortion. To hear more, you can find Access 
wherever you get your podcasts or at apodcastaboutabortion.com. That's apodcastaboutabortion.com. I'll see you later.